In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Almighty God and Father, we come to you under the patronage of St. Philip Neri, and we pray that, like him, you would pour forth your Spirit into our hearts and inflame them with love for you, that all that we would do would be for the greater glory of your name and for the salvation of our souls. And we ask this as all things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, welcome to the first group of the School of St. Philip Neri. Uh, over the past year and a half, uh, the group has been entitled School of Christi, so you may be a little bit uh, confused since I advertised it on Facebook under that title. But uh, for a number of years, we've wanted to create something here that clarified the, the nature of people's relationship to the oratory, uh, which is always can be a very challenging thing to do, and is particularly challenging for us since we are not a parish. Uh, each oratory is an autonomous house within a diocese, and anyone throughout that diocese can come to the oratory uh, for any of their spiritual needs, whether sacramental or devotional or educational purposes, educational needs. And, uh, but with that, they, have, they develop a special relationship with the community. And there's some, something unusual about the nature of the way that the oratory was originally established in comparison to religious communities. Uh, when Philip Neri was a, a young man back at the beginning of the 16th century, he came to Rome and he engaged in a kind of evangelization as uh, a layman. Uh, it's very much like what the church is calling people to today with the new evangelization. That as a layman, he uh, spent a great deal of time immersed in prayer, but also in engaging people in Rome from the businessman to the beggar, uh, about the gospel, as well as uh, helping to start uh, a fraternity uh, at that time, a fraternal association that was dedicated to serving the pilgrims that would come to Rome that didn't have food or, or shelter. But he also worked with this group in uh, the hospitals of Rome, in particular giving attention to those who were the incurables, those who were, who were dying. So as a layman, Philip was dedicated in uh, great measure uh, to God, consecrating his life to God and the service of the people of Rome. And he had a great desire to, to go off to the Indies with St. Ignatius and the, the Jesuits, or with the Jesuits, uh, to, to become a missionary. But uh, his spiritual director at the time counseled otherwise, that his Indies was to be Rome. And so Philip remained in Rome at that time and, and engaged in this work as, as a layman, but it brought down a certain level of suspicion uh, on him that in our day and age it's not an unusual thing to have lay people very much involved in the life of the church and teaching and educating, but in Philip's day the idea of evangelization would have probably been seen as more of a clerical thing, that this would be something that would be done by religious or uh, priest of the day. And so all of Philip's activities came under close scrutiny uh, from the hierarchy of the church at the time. And it was then that he 
received counsel from his spiritual director that his work would better be served if he would be ordained as a priest. In this way, he could administer the sacraments to those that he engaged in Rome, and uh, he could also offer mass and, and preach. And so this is what Philip did. And he creates uh, not another religious community that's bound by vows. Instead, he creates uh, a community that is uh, an apostolic society of secular priests. So they, they live in the world, uh, very much like diocesan priests, but, and they take no vows uh, of, as a religious would. And this gave freedom, Philip and those who joined him a kind of freedom then to engage the people of Rome uh, in this new kind of evangelization of the day. The faith of the people had become rather lax as well as that of the hierarchy, or not of the hierarchy, of the priests, I mean. And, and so Philip uh, had a great hand in sort of renewing the faith of the people of his day. So the oratory begins not with uh, uh, the founding of a religious congregation. It begins with a group of lay people in Rome that had gathered around Philip uh, because of his personal charism, his love for Christ, and his bearing witness to Christ both in his uh, charitable activities as well as engaging people about the gospel throughout the city. And it's only through the guidance of his spiritual director that the congregation of the oratory then is established to serve what had become the secular oratory or the little oratory in Rome. You had something to add to that? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I didn't know that. Uh -huh. Okay. So at this point, though, had, mm -hmm. was he ordained a priest at this point? Well, when the community is established, okay. he Once is. The Once he's, but it wasn't until he was 36 years old that he was ordained to the priesthood, so it would have been a relatively late vocation for his time. But the unusual thing about it is that the community is established because a vision had already been established and there was already great fruit to it, that Philip had begun to gather around him uh, a great group of disciples who were very energized about the, the faith. And so to this day, with the founding of any new oratory throughout the world, also established with it is something called the secular oratory or the little oratory. And this is the primary ministry of the congregation, that there is a fraternal association, uh, not quite a third order uh, or oblates like the Benedictines would have, but a fraternal association of those who come to the oratory, who are attracted to the spirituality of Philip Neri, who have a great love for God. The bond is one of charity or desire for holiness. So not mu so much to a particular role or way of life, but rather to a particular community in that city. And so those who would come to the oratory, if they have a particular attraction to to its ministry, uh, even though they would be registered in their own parish, can come to the oratory in order to participate in the sacraments here as well as in educational groups. Uh, so this is a rather long preface into why we're making the change here, but uh, 
part of our desire is to, to clarify that for people. It's sort of interesting. We were brought here back in the early 60s by Bishop Wright uh, to serve the secular universities as university chaplains, which makes sense that we are secular priests and so to, to come to secular universities to bear witness to the gospel and to have a stable entity like the oratory uh, showed Bishop Wright's sort of genius. He did have a kind of vision there. But over the years, we've also become almost hyper-identified with campus ministry. So the oratory has been seen as those who do campus ministry rather than an oratory that follows the charism of St. Philip Neri and would have as its central ministry uh, the secular oratory, those who belong to it. So all of those who would come to the oratory for whatever reason, even if it only be for confession weekly or one of our masses or, or for adoration, our primary ministry would be to this group and all other ministries would flow out of that, including our campus ministry. And it's taken 40 or 50 years, you know, actually about 60 years now, uh, for this to solidify as our community has grown and the members of the community have grown. And so now we have priests who are free also to attend to this most important ministry of the oratory, to the secular oratorians, all those who would come here. And so any of our groups offered for adults here at the oratory, so Father Drew's Bible study, the Cassian reading group, the First Friday vigils, adoration, uh, there's a group on the Pope's book, Love and Responsibility. Uh, this group, all of these would be offered for those who uh, simply come to the oratory or those who are officially members of, of the secular oratory. But uh, we wanted to have one group in particular that was dedicated to the secular oratorians, but also to the, the spirituality of, and charism of Philip Neri. And... Uh, so this is the reason that we've changed this group from being the School of Christi, the School of Christ, to the School of St. Philip Neri. And one of the reasons we're making the change now is that next year is the 500th year anniversary of St. Philip Neri's birth, which uh, takes place on the Feast of St. Mary Magdalene, July 22nd. So is that next week or two weeks from now? So 10 days from now would be Philip's 499th birthday. But we want to spend this year in particular uh, exposing people to uh, the person of St. Philip Neri as well as his spirituality. And uh, so you might become familiar with why he was such a powerful force in the life of the church. As many, as you, as many of you know, he was known as the Apostle of Rome that he helped to evangelize uh, the church of his day that was still reeling or in the midst of the Protestant Reformation. And so he was uh, a major part of the Counter-Reformation that included uh, groups like uh, the Jesuits. And uh, although it may, the oratory may seem to be a small outfit, a, a little small platoon within that larger army, of the church militant, uh, it still a was a necessary element and a very powerful one to revitalize the life of the church. And so throughout this year, I'd like to uh, uh, spend some time exposing you both to Philip's life, so something from his uh, biography every, every month, 
but also uh, a reflection from a book called The, the School of St. Philip Neri, which was written by an Italian and then translated by Father Faber, who was an oratorian from the London Oratory. And it's a magnificent little book of reflections that captures Philip's uh, approach to confession, his teachings on the various virtues, his teachings on the Holy Eucharist. So I think throughout the course of this year and beyond, we'll be able to approach so many of our, our beliefs and our practices of, as Catholics through, through the eyes of Philip Neri. And uh, quarterly, we will have all the oratorians uh, come to this group, and so that all the, the full community can be here at least four times a year, and that quarterly we'll also have a, a nicer dinner, too, so that we could sit down uh, with everyone who, who comes to the group. And uh, so I hope you uh, excuse me for making the quick shift here, but I thought it might be best for us just to, to jump in and to help and to start uh, giving it a little bit shape uh, now uh, so that when the, the new year comes around, uh, we'll have things in place. And so probably in, I guess that would be uh, August or September, the full community will come and the seminarians will come back uh, for seminary on those particular evenings too. So it'll be the the, the full house. Uh, we also have, we'll have 10 guys at that point. We have a new young man who's uh, moving in here in August. His name is Tommy Skamai, uh, although I don't know if that's public knowledge yet, so don't go <laughs> spreading it around. <laughs> it is now since we're recording it, but uh, a great guy. And uh, so the house is full at this point. All of our bedrooms are full. So it's an exciting time for us as a community. But uh, I'm looking forward to this group because every time I go back and look at the life of Philip Neri and uh, writings about him and his spiritual life, uh, there's another book called The Excellencies of the Oratory, which I hope that we'll have an opportunity uh, to go through here in the future as well. Every time I go through this, I begin to see the, the beauty of Philip's life and his virtue and charism that often remains something that's very hidden. Uh, because Philip did not establish, uh, you know, a very detailed role. The bond was to be one of charity. He had basically destroyed all of his writings twice, and so all that we have from him are things that other people wrote that he had said, or and a few letters from him. So we, you come to know the oratory and Philip's charism through coming to an oratory or through living in it. It's only after living here almost 30 years that I, I finally begun to understand something of who, who, Philip Neri, who Philip Neri was and what an extraordinary man he was. Yes, Anthony. It's just one last point for Frank. Um, so a very rotten or, I mean, sophisticated oratorian would be Carmen Luther Newman, mm -hmm. very well known for his, um, I, I imagine you've probably read of him excessively, but I mean... I've heard of him, yeah. <laughs> he's, um, he was writing yeah. His writing style, his writing method is very sophisticated. It's, it's, very, it's very deep. Um, right. And I was wondering, what is St. Philip Neary's origin? Before he was an oratorian priest, before that moment in the cave when the ball of fire entered into him, into him what was he before that? I mean, was he a carpenter? What was, what did he Well, do? in order to support himself, he tutored uh, the boys from a young family. And 
he lived a very meager lifestyle on a few pennies a day. You know, uh, you would typically eat maybe a little bit of bread, uh, a hard-boiled egg, and some olives or something like that. So he was very abstemious, <clears throat> and, and so he lived what we would probably consider to be a life of a vagrant. And his life was dedicated to prayer. Yeah. Was he born in Rome? No, he was born, uh, he was a Florentine, so he was born in Florence in 1515 and left home at a fairly early age. Uh, his father wanted to set him up in a family business with one of his uncles and Philip didn't take to it and instead spent a great deal of time in a little place called Gaeta right along the Mediterranean Sea for a short period of time, not far from Monte Cassino, at least that was in view, and uh, had also experienced the influence of the Dominicans in, in Florence. They had a great influence on him. Uh, Savonarola, the, yes. the great preacher of that time, and Firebrand, uh, had a great influence on Philip Neri, even though they were completely different in character. I mean, uh, Savonarola was... Uh, I think eventually burned at the stake yes, and, uh, and was a very fiery preacher seeking reform within the life of the church and <laughs> but yeah, that's right but uh, Philip admired him throughout the course of his whole life in fact had a, a picture of him hanging in his room but uh, nonetheless he was much he took a much different approach a very gentle <clears throat> humble approach between Carl Newman to Philip Neri, as far as I know, that's a great difference. A chasm. <laughs> that's right. Very right. complex. I think that's part of the beauty of the oratory itself, that you know, the bond is one of charity, but each house is autonomous. And so even though we follow a common rule, uh, each house has a unique character to it. So a British house, like Newman's, is obviously going to be very different in spirit from Philip Neary's house or this house in Pittsburgh. But within the oratory, uh, the personalities are, are very different too. So as you've probably seen in this house, all the men are of radically different character and have different interests, but the bond of charity is what keeps us to get together and this, the commitment to stability. And we see that those differences is not a weakness to be overcome, that we have to make every, uh, everybody a cookie-cutter image of, you know, of, of each other, but rather to have that be a unique feature of the community and something that, that enriches the life of the community as well as those who would come to it for groups or for its liturgies. So we, hold, we have a common mind when it comes to the teachings of the church. We seek to be true sons of the church but we realize that we, we are all going to be very different even though we follow this, this common role. And so you can have in the oratory someone like St. Philip Neri, who although he was very well educated, knowledgeable about the faith, uh, engaged people in a much different way and was much more focused upon the life of prayer, the contemplative life, was very engaging, outgoing, where Newman was more reserved, although he had a deeply pastoral spirit, uh, was also an academic, a theologian, a philosopher, a church historian, and so who wrote, as you had said, uh, a great deal, and likewise had a great impact upon the life of the church, but in a different fashion. What's that? 
Carl Newman did not burn his writings. He did not burn his writings. He was prolific, as prolific as someone like Augustine in, in his writings. So much different character. But hopefully the, these are the things that we'll be able to talk about throughout the course of the year. You know, the nature of the oratory and, and the, the room there for a diversity, you know, I think in personality and, and uh, approach to the faith. And each of us here at the oratory has, our, we all, all have our own unique interest, but our one common interest is a love for the oratory and for Philip Neary. And I think it's part of our desire to have a group like this to introduce people to him uh, because he is such a profound teacher uh, of the faith and has very much to offer our generation just as he offered his own. And so what I want to do here tonight is uh, just begin by uh, seeking Philip's intercession by praying together the litany of St. Philip Neri. And then uh, each month I just want to uh, read a little selection from Philip's life. We're not going to start right at the beginning this time. Next, next time we gather we'll start with the beginning of Philip's life. But I just wanted to give you a little story that sort of captures something of Philip's character. And uh, he could be very challenging at times. I don't know if he would have been all that easy uh, to live, live with. He was uh, you know, a joyful, gentle spirit, but he could also be very challenging in the things that he would give his penitents to do and sometimes the members of his own community as our, our reading will pick up tonight. And then after that, I want to share with you the, the selection that I handed out or that I put on the back table from the School of St. Philip Neri. And in particular, it's on Philip's approach to the sacrament of confession. And it's in and through this means in particular that he sought to revitalize the life of the faithful through the grace of the sacrament and to revitalize their love for the Holy Eucharist by preparing them through this sacrament then to enter into the, the reception of the Holy Eucharist more fully. And so I think it's a, a great place for us to start tonight. And uh, he has some wonderful practical advice about how to enrich the experience uh, of confession for us. And so why don't we begin here with the litany. <clears throat> Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, hear us. God, the Father of heaven. God, the Son, Redeemer of the world. God, the Holy Ghost. Holy Trinity, one God. Holy Mary. Holy Mother of God. Holy Virgin of Virgins. Saint Philip. Vessel of the Holy Spirit, Child of Mary, Apostle of Rome, Counselor of Popes, Voice of Prophecy, Man of Primitive Times, Winning Saint, Hidden Hero, Sweetest of Fathers, Flower of Purity, Martyr of Charity, Heart of Fire, Discerner of Spirits, Choicest of Priests, Mirror of the Divine Life, 
Pray for us. Pattern of humility. Pray for us. Example of simplicity. Pray for us. Light of holy joy. Pray for us. Image of childhood. Pray for us. Picture of old age. Pray for us. Director of souls. Pray for us. Gentle guide of youth. Pray for us. Patron of thine own. Who didst observe chastity in thy youth? Pray for us. Who didst seek Rome by divine guidance? Pray for us. Who didst hide so long in the catacombs? Pray for us. Who didst receive the Holy Ghost into thy heart? Pray for us. Who didst experience such wonderful ecstasies? Pray for us. Who didst lo- so lovingly serve the little ones? Pray for us. Who didst wash the feet of pilgrims? Pray for us. Who didst ardently thirst after martyrdom? Who didst distribute the daily word of God? Who didst turn so many hearts to God? Who didst converse so sweetly with Mary? Who didst raise the dead? Who didst set up thy houses in all lands? Lamb of God, who takest away the sins of the world. Lamb of God, who takest away the sins of the world. Lamb of God, who takest away the sins of the world. Christ, hear us. Remember thy congregation. Let us pray. O God, who is exalted, blessed Philip, thy confessor, in the glory of thy saints, grant that as we rejoice in his commemoration, so may we profit by the example of his virtues through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd like to ask uh, Jim Arnell to come up now and to read our selection from the life of Philip. The selection is uh, comes from fairly far along in Philip's life. The ministry is already well established, and he's an older, older man. It's, no, it's the reading I'd open. A reading from the life of our glorious patriarch, St. Philip Neri, Apostle of Rome. He was anxious that his spiritual children should use more diligence in the acquisition of the virtue of humility than of any other, so that often, both in youth and in old age, he used to say in a sing-song voice, as if he were humming a tune, those two great words, humility and detachment and as St. John the Evangelist was continually saying to his disciples, love one another, so Philip was ever repeating his favorite lesson, be humble, think little of yourselves. And he seemed never to be tired of laying stress upon it. Francesco Maria Tarugi was preaching one day and enlarging in a very spirited manner upon the excellence and utility of suffering, so that all who heard him applauded. The Holy Father, who was present, fearing lest this should be an occasion of vainglory to Francesco, began to make the usual fluttering movements which he was accustomed to make, and getting up, struck a pilaster with his hand, and drew the whole attention of the audience upon himself. This he continued to do as long as the sermon lasted. And then, mounting into Tarugi's place, he cried out with a loud voice that none of the congregation 
had any occasion to be vainglorious or boastful, because up to that time not one of them had shed so much as a drop of blood for the love of Christ. But that on the contrary, by their service and following of their divine master, they had only earned for themselves honor and reverence, and then went on to discord at some length upon this matter to the great edification of those who heard him. So you get a little glimmer, I think, of Philip's character here. Uh, he's often <clears throat> spoken of as the joyous saint or the joker, you know, the one who played practical jokes. And But there was a rich spirituality behind this that Philip saw as the fundamental virtue for those who follow a crucified Lord as being humility. And that uh, if we are to walk that path of Christ, we can't exalt ourselves in any way. And so when uh, one of the oratorians was being applauded for his particular skills and talent of oratory, in, in the preaching sense of the word, uh, Philip was very quick to uh, you know, draw back not only the preacher but the congregation from that, that they would not lose sight of the fact that, you know, for most of us, you know, whether in, or most of those in Philip's generation and most, uh, certainly in our generation in, in America, to be a Christian brings upon us no shame, no, no suffering, and, you know, but only will bring us a kind of respect or reverence, you know, from others. And so we do have to be cautious in the way that, that Philip speaks here. Uh, Brother Paul's going to be ordained to the diaconate next year, so I, I use this one in particular so I could... <laughs> for his first homily. <laughs> but was he, was he flapping his arms around to make noise during the sermon? That's what I thought I heard. So yes. Did anyone actually hear this good sermon? It sounded like... It was, it, yeah, it was during. He was okay. pounding on one of the pillars, you know, making noise uh, as a way of, you know, drawing attention away from it. Because he could see, I mean, not every person would obviously do this. Philip was a very holy priest, and at this point he was, you know, of advanced age, had spent all those years in prayer and could discern hearts. And so he could see what was going on, not only in the heart of uh, the preacher, but also of the congregation. And there is that tendency, I think, you know, to this day to exalt personal talent over the message. And we have to be very careful about that. And so do priests, you know, in their preaching. It's not an exercise in oratory, you know, to show one's talent or ability that, you know, the, the priest who's aged and perhaps not a very gifted speaker, but who is holy and spends great time in prayer, might reach more deeply into the heart of his listeners than the most talented of speakers. And so we have to be very careful about how we uh, approach the liturgy and for the priest in terms of his place within the liturgy. It's not about drawing attention to yourself, it's about drawing attention to Christ. And I think that's what he was, he was trying to emphasize in, in this action, not just to be a disruptive old curmudgeon, but I think he was really, he saw, you know, an opportunity there to educate them in this most important of virtues. Yeah. 
So, Paul, you're safe. I'm, I'm not going to be pounding on. <laughs> I'd just pick on you in the house, not, not during the liturgy. <laughs> Um, they called him Holy Father. Is that mm -hmm. is that kind of typical? Yeah, you know, it's um, within the oratory. The superior is the provost, is given the name of provost. But the tradition of the oratory is simply that he would be called Father. That the the paternal aspect of the superior is emphasized, and the effects, you know, the filial affection that the members of the community would have for him is emphasized too. And it's interesting, this had a great effect upon the life of the community. It was said that the members of the oratory showed greater obedience to Philip Neri than the members of any of the religious communities in Rome showed to their superiors. That even though the oratorians didn't take a vow of any kind, it's because Philip was such a holy figure and so loving and they had such a deep love and affection for him that whatever, and so trusted him so much that they would immediately respond to whatever he would ask. And he asked very little. He said, you know, for those who would be obeyed, ask very little. And that's what he did, and often would put things in the form, not do this or do that, or I hold you under obedience to do this, but rather, would you mind doing me the favor of, of this? You know, always in a request form. You know, offering the, the person the opportunity to do it out of love, not simply out of a kind of dutiful obedience. So it's in little things like this, you know, the title of father, you know, the the lack of the the, the vows, the you know how uh, Philip approached humility and obedience. These are all the things that begin to reveal something about his his character and his sanctity. So it was actually sort of. Gesturing, saying, be humble, be the guy. <laughs> 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 is that what we're to understand from that reading? <laughs> well, it sounds like that's what yeah. you know, Philip did, I don't know if he's saying like that, but, <laughs> 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 but you know, there was, there was a kind of joyful lightheartedness about Philip that often their outings would involve you know, walks through vineyards that would involve, you know, songs that would be in the vernacular and things like that, and always a cheerful kind of thing. And so even in his instruction of others on matters such as humility, that he would make use of things like this. Or there's one little story of him just saying to someone who seemed melancholy, you know, let us take a run together and then making him, you know, run around in circles with him, you know, just to sort of pull him out of, you know, this sad, you know, spirit out of the, this despondency. So there is something, you know, really beautiful about Philip's character. You know, he could be firm when he needed to, whenever he saw somebody being, you know, very uh, prideful or hurtful to others or to animals even to, you know, to any creature. You know, Philip could be, you know, rather stern. Or when somebody uh, wasn't obedient, you know, he would, you know, have them leave the community at that moment. Because in his mind, you know, he said, if I have 10 truly detached men, I could convert the world. And so anyone that he saw having a spirit of disobedience within him or a spirit of melancholy, you know, would often be asked to leave 
the community, that they might make you know a good priest or a good member of another community, but the oratory was not a place for them because one of the fundamental attributes was to be joyfulness. Just on that point, how do you court joyfulness? How do you court humor? How do you... Because I remember one of his recommendations is that when you offer correction, do with humor. Right. Uh, well, I mean, it's important to make this distinction. Philip's joy came from this very deep place within him. It came through his union and communion with God. And, you know, all those years that he spent in the depths of the catacombs in prayer. And with that came a freedom from anxiety. And so he could have this deep and abiding joy and be able then to draw others into it. But it wasn't often what we think of joy. He made the distinction between true joyfulness and buffoonery that you know, the kind of buffoonery that takes nothing serious at all is not what Philip had in mind. For him, that would diminish any kind of true spirituality. That when we approach the spiritual life, we have to have a kind of real discipline and seriousness about it, but a seriousness that is also shaped by the joy of, of the spirit, not the kind of buffoonery of the, of the world. And this is where I think people often will fall short of their perception of Philip Neri. If he, pre if he played these practical jokes, or if he did these things like pounding on a pilaster, or making somebody carry a dog through the city, or run around in circles with him, it was to, you know, to bring them out of despondency or melancholy, or to teach them humility. It wasn't just an act of buffoonery, in other words on his part. He wasn't just acting silly for silliness sake. And I think this is what will come alive for us over the course of this year as we see more of his character. So when you say that there's probably a fine line between those two and the fact that he had such a deep and genuine um, faith and mm -hmm. even it sounds like maybe some charism. You know, right. Could read the heart, right. Um, that he could do that, right? But most holy men probably can't right. without stepping into the buffoonery category, right? Right. Yeah. What What we would seek to learn from Philip is the 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 virtues, right? You know, humility, detachment, the joyfulness, but not, you know, take upon ourselves the things that were gifts that he was given, in particular, and that were the fruit of his. Life that was right and long labor and of a life consecrated truly to God, and so I wouldn't pound on a pilaster at Paul's first homily <laughs> because I'm no, no Saint Philip Neri. But uh, so we want to focus, I think, on the virtues that that he teaches, and not make too much of the extraordinary things, realizing that they they were given to him in particular and for a particular purpose. Any other thoughts before we go on to his discussion of confession? Okay. Why don't we move on to the text then? And we'll do this as we've done in the past. You know, just go through it and uh, don't be afraid to circle some things or you know, draw out some things that, that catch your attention. And 
As I mentioned, Philip sought to revitalize the faith of the time primarily through the sacraments. And he saw the ministry of the Oratorian as being very simple, three pillars, the administration of the sacraments, the familiar discourse on the word of God, so daily preaching, which would have been an unusual thing in his day, uh, and, then, and then prayer, that these are the three pillars upon which the oratory apostolate is built. And you know, it was certainly confession that he emphasized most of all, and I, I think it can really speak to our generation in a profound way and have the same fruit if we are to embrace it in the same Father, spirit. that time, was it uh, customary to have daily mass? Yes, but not frequency of communion. It would have been rare for people to receive communion often. And this is also something that we see in Philip, too, is that with those who were you know, seeking to grow in holiness through their regular confession, then were also drawn into the regular reception of Holy Communion, but he always saw confession as part of that preparation for the fruitful reception of Holy Communion. So he did have communicants that would receive every Sunday or three times a week and then some even daily. And one of the future lessons that we'll be looking at, we'll we'll touch upon this more directly, but I think that also speaks in, in an important way to our age as well, where everyone now comes up to communion, and it's, it seems to be, at least in an indiscriminate fashion, that there's some formation that we have to undergo as well in terms of our formation to receive uh, holy, the Holy Eucharist well, to prepare ourselves ahead of time. And Philip is a superb guide in this, in this regard. And the first step to that is, is frequent confession. And it's a hard thing in our day because often confession isn't uh, available as frequently as it was in Philip's time. Or, and I don't even know how available it was in Philip's time. I think he was in large part, you know, part of the revival of that. You know, offering it with such frequency that he was available almost 24 hours a day. That he'd leave the key above his door. People would come in and knock and wake him up at any time of the day to go to go to confession. And he had some people who would even go to confession daily, if necessary, give him whatever they happened to be struggling with. And if it was something that they struggled with on a daily basis, then he would want them to avail themselves of the sacrament, not in a scrupulous way. I think he was conscious of, you know, protecting people from that, but also realizing the necessity and the importance of the sacrament to overcome certain sins. It's not by simply by the strength of our will, but by the grace of God that they're overcome. So when we take a, a look here at what, what Philip has to say. The Holy Master, St. Philip, exhorts the penitent to choose one particular director and to think well and pray before choosing him in order, as the saint himself observes, that he may find one who shall be good, learned, discreet, and experienced. The penitent, therefore, must ascertain whether the confessor has these qualities required by St. Philip. It is also expedient never to change the confessor, and the Holy Master expressed this opinion. Let anyone who would persevere in the spiritual life always confess to the same person. Nor was he pleased when persons went to another confessor. Such changes make the consciences of the penitents restless, as is particularly related of a penitent of the Holy Father, 
who the first time that he confessed to another fell into profound melancholy and anxiety of conscience, so that to free himself from this and to recover his serenity, his only remedy was to return to his first confessor and to disclose his unfaithfulness in going to another. Now, there are a couple of things in this that might be sort of jarring to our sens sensibilities or to our practice of confession. And the first is the opinion that we should choose one confessor. And for a number of reasons, this might seem difficult in our day, but in Philip's mind, that we would want to choose well, so pray and think well, think you know, thoroughly about the confessor that we would want to have on a regular basis, but that once chosen, that we would stay with that confessor. And there are a number of reasons for this, that over the course of time, the confessor's knowledge of the penitent can grow, and so he can be a greater aid in the, in the spiritual battle. And also, through that familiarity, through that knowledge uh, that the confessor would have, he can put the, the penitent at ease and allow them to be able to confess what's on their heart without shame, but have a greater trust in God. And also allow them to go deeper, I think, in that examination of conscience, that over the course of time, one's conscience can become refined and more sensitive. And so if you have a good confessor, he's going to help to fashion and form that conscience with you over the course of time through the guidance and the counsel that's given within the confessional. And sometimes we will have a, might have a feeling that, well, okay, I've fallen into this particular sin, it's embarrassing, and so I don't want to go back to that confessor because there would be something humbling about that. And we're given an example here that you know someone did that and it's described as it it's making the conscience of the individual restless and filled with anxiety and part of the reason for that is that they know in a subtle way that the the reason for doing that is is pride or to hold something back or to create a different image in the confessor's eyes now, of course, in our day, it might be, you know, Philip would certainly want, even want someone to go to confession when they needed to, and that if they couldn't get to their regular confessor, that they would go and then return, you know, when, the, when they could. But the ideal would be to, to ch choose the one and to remain with them over time, and not to break off of that, and, except under urgent you know, some urgent need. If the confessor were to die or to become ill, obviously you would want to be able to go to confession and not refrain from doing so. And I think in my mind this is something that we've really move, moved away from. You know, part of, because of necessity, because people got out of the habit of going to confession as frequently, and so confessions are offered less frequently, and aren't as available. So at times it can be very difficult to find someone who will serve as a regular confessor. But I think what Philip would say is that it is worth the effort and that we shouldn't make an excuse out of that reality. That it's true that there might not be as many confessors available, but we don't want to then free ourselves from the, the charge of this guidance here 
to really seek out one to work with in order that we might benefit the most from the sacrament and from the counsel that we would we would receive. And the same would be true, I would say, of spiritual direction, that a lot of time in prayer might go into choosing a spiritual director, but that you would seek to do the same thing, to stay with that one over time in order that you might receive the greatest benefit out of it. Any thoughts about the, the first paragraph? Brother Paul, can I give you a key here to change the temperature of the air conditioning? I don't know if it's the reading or if it's the temperature, but everybody seems to be shaking. <laughs> there's a movie called Cold Comfort Farm. And do you remember that? And there's a church that they go to of these, uh, what was it, something of the, those, the, those who the are the brethren. Uh, Quaking Brethren the shaking brethren or something, and the, the, the part of their charism is that they shake out of fear, you know, <laughs> from the, the, the preacher's sermons. You could just turn it up so it's warmer in here. Mm-hmm. So up by up, I mean, not, not down. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what Philip says in the next line here, or that... The Holy Master then would never permit the confessor to be changed on slight grounds, but said, when once chosen, let him never be changed, but for most ur- urgent reasons. So it's, it's not as though he excludes the possibility that one might find over time that it's not a good fit or for one reason or another that it should be changed, but you would only do that after great thought. Father, my, my director, who I haven't seen for some time, though, had because I travel a lot, I end up going to confession in parts of all over the country. Mm-hmm. So he said, those sins are forgiven, but you need to tell me what they were. Mm-hmm. So we keep a little log. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good counsel because it allows for a kind of continuity there with you that even though you've confessed it and, you know, truly and, you know, it's a valid sacrament and the grace is received, that to be able to go back and tell your confessor, this is what I struggled with and confessed before, in order that he might continue to give, give you the counsel and know what you're struggling with. Not only to give counsel, but to pray for you. The, the confessor often will take on penances for you know, the, the penitents who come to him and would take them to prayer, to, you know, knowing their struggles. And so why would we want to hide or refrain from, you know, bringing to our confessor the things that we, we struggle with the most, knowing that they're perhaps our greatest advocate in prayer. Mm-hmm. I think if people knew that, that is, I think that it would encourage people to reveal themselves in prayer if they knew that they were going to a priest who actually was going to take. There's a, a priest with a heart that's going to take penances right. on himself or go to prayer. Right. I think that would... Yeah. And I think, you know, Philip, and we get into the nature of the confessor yeah. further on in this reflection, but I think Philip did encourage and instill that kind of confidence that he was a man of prayer. People knew it and they could have confidence in him by the way that he engaged them, you know, the kind of gentleness that he had, you know, that there was never a harshness that they, you know, received at his hand in in that regard. And we see this in other great confessors 
over time, too. They were all men of prayer. John Vianney, Padre Pio. So, you know, those who went to confession to them would certainly know, especially John Vianney. I mean, people knew that he took on himself great penances. And often he would be questioned, you know, if he would tell somebody to say a few Hail Marys or a decade, you know, that ask about about it. You know, it's because he was taking upon himself the greater penance on, on their behalf. And so that's, you know, that's why I think we would want to pray for priests as well, that they would be able to be a vehicle, uh, you know, of, of deep healing and that they would have this, this same kind of spirit where they would be advocates for their, their penitence. Okay. We have a good bit to get through here, so why don't we just move on. And the penitent, now this might be hard to listen to the penitent must resolve to place himself as a dead body in the hands of his confessor, according to the expression of the servant of God, Giovanna Battista Foligno, who thus placed himself in the hands of St. Philip that he might do with him what he pleased, and who minutely observed the precepts of the saint with such unspeakable profit to his soul that even during his lifetime he was called the blessed Giovanna Battista. So, you know, this Something like this can only be done, I think, if there is sort of this long-standing kind of relationship that a person would have with a confessor and a trust that's been out developed over time. That you could place yourself in the hands of your confessor and have a kind of obedience there, even though you're not in a religious community under a vow of obedience, that this is how you would live that obedience out to your confessor, that you would have the confidence of doing that because of the relationship that developed over time. It'd be very hard, I think, for a person who is constantly having to switch from confessor to confessor to have that kind of confidence. And, you know, how, how could a confessor really know a person in great depth without having that, you know, having come to know, know them over the course of years? You know, oftentimes as a confessor, they would be forced into offering the most basic kind of counsel simply because they don't know or don't have a full picture there of the nature of the person's spiritual life or what they've struggled with. They don't know much of the backstory, as it were. Father, uh, yes. in St. Philip Newish, there was anonymous confession of Norman. Did he uh, propose a different change to that? His way I think people went to confession to him wherever they could get him. I mean, there was a practice of anonymous confession, certainly at that point, but I think a lot of times he would hear them wherever, wherever it was needed, wherever it was requested. And another, that would be another reason to develop a kind of trust. You know, it's, I think, part of saying, you know, one's confession behind a screen offers a kind of freedom there and I think the church wants to foster that and offer that but I think you know with someone like Philip that people could even go face to face and feel that same you know freedom of spirit and offering their their confession yes so in Philip Neri's time uh, since they were penitents uh, behind a screen uh, did he often know his the penitent's voice as most yeah, and today I think he knew them very well, and there's uh, stories of him drawing people. He had this experience, 
in the catacombs of Rome where the Holy Spirit enters into his heart and his heart expands and from that point on it shakes the whole room when he's moved with the fervor of the Holy Spirit but it also became a source of consolation to those who came to him with particular struggles and when he would draw them to his heart they would be consoled and it's often spoken of him doing this within the context of confession and we just read a, a, a story the other night too where someone came and was giving a false confession and he knew it and so he made the person place his head upon his knees looking into the ground telling him you know to think of his you know of his own judgment and and so the person then is moved to conversion of life after this. So it's clear that it wasn't only behind the screen for Philip, that there was this kind of personal contact that he did have with his confessors. It probably was unusual for his day, but I think only because of the particular charism and gift that he did have of consoling those who came to him. So don't worry, I won't be giving people you know, <laughs> bear hugs in. <laughs> huh? Why is it Well, sometimes out of fear, you know, lack of humility. Uh, there could be, you know, uh, a, you know, even, you know, in a kind of demonic sense, a desire to mock the sacrament. You know, and Philip could see that. You know, that there's, uh, towards the end of this reading, he talks about people not abusing the sacrament and that there was a particular lady that came to him only because she wanted bread. And so she was using the sacrament in order to do that. And basically, he told her not to come back again for confession. It wasn't that he lacked generosity, but he could tell that he, she was using the, the sacrament in this terrible way rather than simply asking for the need she was trying to manipulate him through it. Okay. Why don't we move on here? The penitent must imagine that St. Philip addresses to him the same exhortation as to Caesar Tomasi, who says, he exhorted me always to shun sin and to endeavor to be without it if I wish to be in the grace of God. And so, you know, Philip sought very on to foster within his penitence a kind of abhorrence to, of sin, as we see in the next paragraph, to, to shun it. You know, not to play this kind of game that, that I think we often do, these kind of mental games uh, about, you know, how far can I go before it's a mortal sin or, you know, or it's really not all that bad. What he really sought to sensitize and to refine people's consciences that they would have any kind of attraction to sin at all. You know, that he wasn't trying to foster people, in people, this attitude of just being good enough or being good people. He wanted to make, help make them saints. And so create a kind of hatred for sin that would match their, their love for God. And so in the next paragraph we hear, under occasions of sin, we should reflect on the abhorrence of sin expressed by our holy master who said, Rather than commit one mortal sin, I would willingly be quartered and die a most cruel death. Should a person fall into some sin, let him reflect that his soul has become altogether deformed 
and therefore run directly to the feet of his confessor for the removal of that deformity, which was even externally visible to the eyes of St. Philip, who one day said to a person who had been to confession, son, you have changed your face and have a better countenance. Words which the saint often used when sinners returned to the state of sin, from the state of sin to the grace of God. And so we don't want to put off availing ourselves to the sacrament and of, of the sacrament. And I, I think, you know, again, there's been this kind of malaise that's come over the, the church in that regard. And also almost the sense that you would be scrupulous if you were going frequently or if you had this attitude that, okay, I've fallen into a serious sin, I need to get to confession right, right away. That a person who you know, has this deep love of God and desire to live in communion with God and desire not to sadden God in any way through sin is going to seek to be reconciled as soon as possible. The deeper the love, the greater also the desire to be reconciled. And this is something that we should be fostering within the church, not discouraging by saying, well, you know, go ahead, go to confession, and then, you know, wor worry about it later, just so long as it's your intention. This was never in the thinking of Philip Neri. Primacy always was with going to confession in order that we might receive and discern receive worthily and discern clearly the gift that's offered to us in the Holy Eucharist. And so if we were not, are not prepared in mind and heart, we would not receive until we had gone to confession. And I think, again, things have become subtly skewed that, you know, confession is delayed for months and months and months, and yet communion has gone week to weekly. Communion is received weekly. And so there's been a skewing of our understanding here of, you know, how it is that we are to engage in the spiritual life. And so I think Philip's counsel here is not only valid, but very important for our own day. Okay. Any thoughts about this? Should there be relapses, still let the penitent return to his confessor with the same readiness, since this was the remedy prescribed by St. Philip to deliver a penitent from sin in which he was so deeply immersed that he fell into it almost every day. But as on every backsliding, he always returned to confession. He, as the saint himself declares, in a short time became a very angel. Uh, what a wonderful expression here, that here is a person who is falling into the same sin every day, which can be a humiliating experience for a person and make them despondent about their own salvation and about the spiritual life as a whole. And yet here was one who followed the counsel of St. Philip of going every day as it was needed and by the grace of the sacrament became like an angel was transformed by that. And part of it is the humility that is expressed in the willingness to do this. That in the depth of that struggle, one would go every humble oneself, even daily if necessary, in the face of that serious sin, in order to be once again reconciled to God. And maybe in the providence of God, 
in that in the spiritual struggle for that person, that's the more important thing, the humility that is gained from needing to do this than if they would be, you know, freed immediately from that particular struggle. Perhaps the humility that's fostered by doing by doing this and needing to go to confession really lifts them up to God in, in a deeper way. This per- person became like an angel in the end because of it and his, and his, and his purity, because of the, you know, probably so humbled by that struggle that he knew his absolute dependence upon the grace of God, not only through the sacrament, but most likely through his, his prayer life as well. Thoughts? I have one question. Yes. So when he, um, he's not necessarily just talking about mortal sins either when he's saying that this person may be going back to confession every day because I feel, I feel like frequently the, the discourse is, you know, we try and look for ways to, you know, whether it's habitual behavior or something that would grounds, I can't think of the word I want right now, or the, mm-hmm. you know, reasons that would lessen the the culpability right. or something. But I mean, here he's not. Yeah, he, he would certainly you know, make that distinction between mortal and venial, but that there, there is something efficacious about availing ourselves of the grace of the sacrament and our struggle with venial sin. That a venial sin unattended eventually is going to lead to our ruination in the spiritual life. And I think our tendency these days is to make light of them instead to be battling with them with equal vigor that we would with with the more serious sin you know sin is a sin and if our love for god is 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 complete we're we are going to want to avoid it whatever it, it might be and so we are required in mortal sin to go to confession before receiving holy communion but we're not excluded from going to confession because what we're struggling with is a venial sin, that there's there's value in doing so. As we learn from the letter of St. John Climacus, as we grow closer to the holiness, the faults within us become more magnified, so that even something that in a, a worse state would be considered only a venial sin, but as we grow in holiness, it is actually something very serious. Right. Um, to say, I was, I don't really know how to talk about this, but I was once reprimanded by an angel for saying to God, hurry up. (laughs) But but in the state that I was in, it was when he reprimanded me, he said, you're not taken from this life and judged. Is that if you had committed a moral sin, you'd be taken from this life and judged. What you said could have been considered that. Right. Yeah, for someone who's... It's not... It's As you grow in holiness, even the smallest thing, thing becomes extreme. Right, because it could be something like that could be a profound expression of one's lack of trust in the providence of God. Yes. And so for, you know... A person in the earlier stages of the spiritual life might be struggling with the more, you know, natural vices or the bodily, flesh, fleshly sins. And so, you know, might not, you know, be attending to something like that. But the, f- the further they grow 
you know, in the life of grace or the deeper they enter into the life of grace, then something like that is to be attended to as vigorously. This lack of trust in the providence of God, wanting him to hurry up and do things in accord with our will as opposed to his will. Well, and I think what, and what we learn from like the Lord of Lord of St. John Climacus is that as you, as you grow in holiness, there is so much more around you. There are so many more demons around you. There are so many more angels around you. So much more depends on what you do and say. When you're initially starting out, it may seem as though it doesn't matter very much at all. Right. But the closer you get, I mean, it's right. It's the difference between maybe a, a private or a sergeant and, a, and in the military and a general. And the general makes a big mis- a little mistake. It can cost the lives of hundreds of people. Right. We'll move on because we still have a good bit, and I'm going to read bigger chunks here <laughs> before st- pausing. Oh, you mind if we move on? Okay. okay. To cure a spiritual person who had fallen into a marked fault after having long walked in the ways of God, the Holy Master said that there was no better remedy than to exhort him to manifest the fall to a person of a good life in whom he had a special confidence, since by that act of humility, God would restore him to his former state. So sometimes it's good simply to be able to acknowledge one's fall or sin to a confidant who we know lives a holy life. That the humility of doing so can be healing in and of itself. Our Holy Father was so enamored of purity of conscience and of unreserved manifestation to the confessor that in consequence of the great benefit which souls derive from frequent confession, he inculcated it by word and example, for he confessed every day with abundant tears. So, by word and example, it's reminiscent of John Paul II. You know, the, there was a, a frequency there, too, with which he availed himself of the sacrament, knowing how important it was. So, not only to be calling people to the reception of the sacrament, but by leading by example. There's probably, as with a child seeing his father on his knees at the foot of a bed praying would have this enormous impact. So seeing a priest standing in the confessional line waiting to go to confession is going to have an enormous impact upon people in terms of encouragement. That here, the one who's calling us to the holy life is seeking it himself and humbling himself as anyone else. Neither let anyone regard occupation as an excuse For in the time of St. Philip, many persons who were occupied went to confession before daybreak. And by the grace of God, confessors will never be wanting who will study their lessons in this school and who after the example of the Holy Father will conform themselves to the inclinations of penitence and be at all times ready for their convenience. So, you know, as Oratorians, we are to remain within the school of St. Philip Neri and bring ourselves back and back again and again to his wor- his words and his examples, his examples, so that we would do the same thing that he would do, that we would make ourselves accessible to hear the confessions of other uh, of others as he did, that we wouldn't make it a secondary or an auxiliary aspect of our priesthood, but a central aspect. We're ordained for this purpose. 
And it's one of the most important things that we do as priests. And so it's not something that we should minimize in our ministry, you know, but just the opposite, that above all things, you know, we can have groups and all kinds of discussions, but it's not nearly as important as being available in the confessional because of the grace that the people receive through the sacrament. And Philip did emphasize that, even to the point where, you know, it, it might seem as a waste of time, you know, to go in and be available within the confessional, not dependent upon, you know, that people are there waiting for you, and so you, you go there and, you know, fulfill this period of time. He went as a way and made himself available in such a way that it fostered the inclination to go to confession. People are more inclined to go to confession if they see the green light on than if they have to make an appointment with the priest. Or if they are squeezed into a narrow time slot that they have to go to. The more times that you offer for confession, the more people are going to come. It's the same thing with that Eucharistic adoration. You know, the more you, more times you offer, the more people are, are going to come to it because it communicates something subtly. This is valuable. This is important, essential to the spiritual life. And so we are going to do all of this to make it accessible, say, 24 hours a day. And that communicates something to people that, okay, I can come here any time of the day. I'm going to be able to go in and even to spend five minutes with the Lord. And the same thing, I, I'll know, I know that confessions here are available on a regular basis. And so if I'm in need, I'm going to go. Now, I've had so many simply for that, that reason. And what tells you that you're offering not enough is that when people say to you, I thank you so much for just being here. Because what that's telling you is that they find it hard to find the opportunity to go to, con go to confession. So as much as we offer here at the oratory, that's probably saying something pretty important to us. It's probably saying offer even more times to make yourself more accessible that people would have the opportunity to go. Okay, where are we here? Okay, the Holy Master says the count and counsels that in confession the penitent should first accuse himself of those grievous sins of which he is most ashamed, since in this way we will most <clears throat> confound the devil and make the most profitable confession. It's contrary to our inclination. I think we will often want to hide or bury the most serious sin in like yes. in the middle there somewhere <laughs> and it's often been captured in movies you know where moonstruck. people yeah moonstruck is like you know I you know I you know I swore and did this and did this and oh yes by the way I committed adultery with yeah. my you know with my fiance's brother you know it's like well, no what was the one you know I I swore no no the one before that <laughs> so you know, the counsel here is so important that you begin your confession with the thing that you're struggling with the most and need 
that needs to be addressed the most to get you know lay it out on the table and not leave it to last uh, in order that the, you know because that's what needs to be struggled with and that's where the councils needed the most and we're honestly where we need to humble our, ourselves the most he who humbles himself will be exalted and so if we're able to go into the confessional and and lay it right out on the tables where you know we are going to know the power of God's grace in our life and that you know it might take a while to develop that it can be a I don't want to be easy you know free and easy in talking about this because I know how challenging it can be to do that this can be a kind of discipline that is developed over, over time we're talking about you know, forming and shaping our, our minds and our hearts in such a way that we can have a deeper and deeper trust in God, that we don't hesitate to bring to him even the things that are the most embarrassing to us, knowing that in doing so, we know this immediate intimacy with him. To acknowledge the truth about ourselves is to acknowledge him in the most profound way. And so for a person, yeah, he knows anyways, but he is truth. And so if we come into the confessional and speak the truth, we immediately enter into you know, the frame of his mercy and his compassion. And that's, that's where we come to know the deepest peace when we're, when we're able to do that. He must never, let's see, he must never, through human respect, conceal any sin, however trivial it may appear. And again, you know, we might, within the confessional, couch things in a certain way, you know, where it almost sounds like a virtue <laughs> rather than a struggle. Like, well, I've struggled with this particular sin, but I've improved greatly from the last time. You know, there's, you know, in a sense of saying, you know, couching it within spiritual growth. Whereas I think the way that we want to confess it is to lay it out just as it is and with a kind of detail that allows the confessor to know what it is. We don't need to go into too much detail, only so much that, that the priest understands what you're, you're talking about. But you don't want to do it in such a way that it conceals the thing that is really eating at your heart and your conscience the most. You want to say it in a way that it, it captures what you're sorrowful for and what really bothers you the most in that struggle in order that the balm, the healing balm, might be applied. And so if we sort of characterize it in a different way, it's like going to a doctor. If we go in and we say, well, you know, my arm's aching and, you know, we're sort of really vague about it. Attack. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it could be... He's not really going to know, but if we can be spe you know, specific about it, well, it's my left arm, and it feels like an elephant sitting on my chest, you know, he has yeah. a pretty good idea that, you know, it's not just like a torn muscle and send us home. There's something that needs to be addressed in greater detail. It seems to be one of the areas where it would be most profitable to have a confessor so that they understand the spirit out of which you're going into so much detail and you're being so thorough. Because I mean, I've had the experience of my confessor being gone and going to someone else and like getting so far into the habit of, you know, just 
you know, not having that distinction between, well, this is my mortal stuff, <coughs> this is the venial stuff, and like, this is everything, just, you know, it, it's this complete, like, you're going for healing, you're going for grace, why would you hide anything? It's like this complete, like, exposure, and the priest thought I was out of my mind. Like, he, he thought I was, like, super scrupulous, and that I was beating myself up, and he spent the entire time telling me that, like, I had to learn that God loved me a little bit, because I clearly thought he hated me. I mean, it was incredible. But it's because he had no idea where it was coming from. Yeah, and again... just so... I think this is the reason to pray for, for priests and for confessors in particular because, you know, we do no favor to penitents when we, you know, start to make those distinctions too much where we disrupt the flow of that confession and the healing that people are seeking there. It might be true that that particular sin that that person's struggling with doesn't seem to be you know, this great thing. But we have to be attentive to the sensitivity of that person's conscience and respect it. And, you know, and nor do we want to minimize the gravity of particular sins either. I think that can be a tendency too. You want to be compassionate and, you know, certainly merciful and express the mercy of Christ. But we don't want to... You know, in some ways, I think it can, could even be disappointing to a penitent to come and have their the sins that they've committed and they, that they feel deep sorrow and compunction for to have that diminished by the, the priest and what and what he says. You know, we want, you know, I think that could be a tendency because you know, if the priest wants to be, you know, the, the good guy here, or he's, or even if he is compassionate and he sees the person suffering. You know, there can be that, that tendency to want to minimize it. And you don't want to do that. I think you want to be able to address it with the person in the spirit in which they are confessing it and with a kind of understanding to be able to enter into that, not in, a, in accord w simply with your own understanding of things, but in, in the way that they are experiencing it. And th I think this is why Philip says, you know, you want to choose somebody who's you know, prudent and discreet and can make those kind of distinctions because it can be hurtful or harmful if it, you know, if it is, you know, dismissed, dismissed in, some, in some fashion. Can you ask a follow-up question to that? And you can make answer. Okay. But if, in following on that, let's say that you did have someone, or a wise confessor, had someone come into the confessional, and they did, they had, they struggled with scrupulosity mm -hmm. because it is something that some people right. struggle with. Would a wise or good confessor uh, say to someone who truly does struggle with scrupulosity, oh, you're just being scrupulous. Mm -hmm. is, uh, what I'm suggesting is, would even with someone who does struggle with it, would you ever say to anyone, I think you're just being scrupulous about this? Well. I wouldn't say, most people who struggle, struggle with scrupulosity already know it. And the struggle with scrupulosity can actually be one of the most painful of things to deal with in, in the spiritual life. And so, again, to just say, well, you're just struggling with scrupulosity is in a kind of way to be dismissive of it. I think a priest at times might acknowledge that that's true, but in and through the practice of confession, 
and the counsel that's given help a person come to a clear understanding of their sins and to move away from that scrupulosity and to develop that deeper trust and the mercy of God so that they would, over time, be able to help reshape that scrupulosity into a healthier approach to the sacrament. Uh, but if, you know, right away you attack, as it were, the, the scrupulosity. It seems like and if a priest did say that to someone who is who genuinely struggled, right. it could just reinforce the problem. Right. Or it could right. reinforce the problem or just make a person despondent about the, the sacrament or their ability to enter into it. I mean, there are p people who are, you know, have psychological issues, extreme, might even have extreme OCD, and, but they still have a genuine faith and they're still struggling and they're coming to the sacrament for healing. And it might not be healing in the way that the, you know, the priests would see it, only in regards to a person expressing particular sins. It might be the healing that they need in order to come to know the mercy of God. And so as a priest, you might be very aware of the fact that there are these other factors that are affecting how the person's entering into it. But you still want it to be a vehicle of healing through, through it. It's not an abuse of the, of the sacrament, you know, because you're still addressing something real that the person is struggling with with there. You know, it's an affliction that the sacrament can bring great healing to. Now, it doesn't mean that you you fail to offer them counsel through that. You, you have to, but you, you don't want to dissuade them from the practice of confession when it's the greatest vehicle of healing, when it can be the greatest source of healing for them. Um, during this, during first the time you began up to now, um, you have not, you've mentioned grace, you've mentioned mercy, you've mentioned virtue, you've mentioned sacrament. And um, you mentioned love. You know, it's, it's a way of getting closer, not only to God, but to the Mother Church to each other as a family. You know, so when you confess, you're not just confessing to get closer, but it's to reunite yourself with God, but also to the to your family church. All right. So what I'm trying to say is that for some reason I don't know why, and it really doesn't matter what uh, faith-based religion you belong to, because I'm 57. Um, I had this terrible, terrible fear that fear and punishment is how I equated my relationship with God. And I really do believe that, like, I thought it was just me. But even as I was going through RCIA, and there were some cradle Catholics that were um, sponsors, they mentioned, you know, and I'm older now, that when they were younger, um, some of the things that were done, I mean, you're speaking of love and grace, somehow it was 
what do you call it, communicated that it was a punishment, that it was, you know, you do it for fear of going to hell. You know, and with that type of base, you look at confession not as something happy, as something that you can get support, not just from God, but from the whole community. You know? Right. Okay, I'm just going to cut you off there. You have some good points that I want but to address. I think that's why a lot of people avoid Right, I agree. And it's not in, in you yourself, right now, I've never heard you say so far, punishment. So far. <laughs> <laughs> I'm holding, I'm waiting, I'm holding on to that one. Please no, I won't. <laughs> you'll, you'll destroy everything I, I uh, No, you make some good points. And the first is, you know, the... I lost it now because we all just laughed about it. Uh, about being reconciled to one and one another. That you're right. I mean, if you know, for married couples, the greatest thing that you could desire is if your spouse is going to confession regularly, and that you would too as well. I mean, this is where you find the strength to be able to offer forgiveness to one another and also to endure, you know, the things that can be very difficult. The crosses that are often exist within relationships and within marriages and so to have your spouse growing in sanctity through the grace of the sacrament is an extraordinary thing so you would want to encourage that as, as much as possible and then you're right I mean often you know people's images are formed by what they pick up in childhood and what is mirrored to them from their parents and often that is this image of God as scrutinizer and punisher and, mean. and right and mean and right God. yeah and a big beard yes I know that says you're going to hell like a thumb that goes like this or like that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the sign I usually give in the confessional <laughs> 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 right but that is a hard thing and I think I think the frequent confession this is the wisdom of Philip Neri that the frequency of confession begins to break that that false image down and it does create the, the true image of God, which is of mercy of, and compassion. And uh, the Eastern, uh, Eastern Catholics and Eastern Orthodox have this word uh, for compunction that is, is sorrowful joy, that the sorrow that we experience in our sin <clears throat> leads to this repentance that brings us back to God, and it's in and through that return to God that then we come to experience this profound joy. And that is the movement that should take place for us. We know this deep compunction sorrow for our sin, but then in, in that return to God we come to experience the fullness of joy, not further you know, desolation. It's our sin that leads to despair and despondency. It's our return to God that should lift, lift us up again in joy, not, not add to fear or not add to anxiety. And again, confessors have to be aware of that, that often there is a kind of history there that people bring that makes that an anxiety-filled experience for them rather than something that's, that's comforting. And sometimes that can take even years and counsel to, to overcome until they, they experience a fuller measure of freedom. We're moving, we're moving on. I, I know, we're moving, well, 
No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> Nothing to apologize about. But we're, we're just a little over time. We, I'm sorry, he must have great faith in his spiritual father, disclosing the slightest matter to him, since the Lord will never permit him to err in anything which is of importance to his penitent salvation. When the devil cannot succeed in tempting a person to grievous sin, he endeavors with all his power to introduce distrust between the confessor and the penitent. For by this means he gradually acquires no little gain, since as our Holy Father himself shows by example of Carlo Mazzi, Mazzi, the devil is afraid of the spiritual father. In those cases where the penitent cannot have access to his confessor, it is well that he should act on what he supposes would be his pleasure, but at the first opportunity he must confer with him to secure himself from error. So, a magnificent point, because you know, if this is a vehicle of growth and holiness, it's this relationship that's going to be attacked, and it often is in undermining the trust that exists there of magnifying the faults, the weaknesses, the poverty of the confessor in the eyes of the penitent in such a way that it undermines the, the trust that has perhaps taken years to develop there. And so we have to guard our hearts that we, we don't give ourselves over to this. We might see something real in our confessor, uh, see a, a weakness, a poverty, you know, they're Human beings, they struggle in the life of faith as anyone else, or they might have a bad day, or you know, or just be old curmudgeons at times. And but that can be used as uh, a means to attack the most important of, of relationships. And so, even if we are forced, he says, by necessity to seek someone else out, that we would still bring ourselves back. We would seek to act in a way that is in conformity with what we believe our confessor would, what he would want us to do. And then we would come back and confer with him ch just to check, to make sure that we weren't following our own will in a particular situation. Another important point, vials must never be made without consent of the spiritual father and for the tranquility of the penitent's conscience as well as to avoid the burden of many obligations, the Holy Father thought it well that a person desiring to make the vow would do so conditionally as if I should remember it or in some such manner. So, you know, Philip was, he had a deep understanding of the human person and he knew that it was always best to temper that zeal in a certain kind of way. So even if a person wanted to make a particular kind of vow or commitment to a, a certain spiritual practice, that it would be done in this way, you know, if I am able to do so. That the intention there is to do it. He didn't dissuade people from making specific resolutions, but was cautious of them doing it with an indiscriminate kind of zeal when the, where they would put themselves in, where they would bind themselves under pain of mortal sin. So he didn't want them to do that, to place obligations upon themselves in a moment of zeal that they were incapable of fulfilling in such a definite manner. He, that he knew at times it would take people years to, to grow in that ability. So it's, it seems again like very wise counsel. 
same thing, disciplines and other austerities of the same kind must never be used without the confessor's permission. For, adds the saint, whoever uses them on his own judgment either injures his constitution or becomes proud by fancying that he has done some great thing. And we must never so attach ourselves to means, to the means as to forget the end, which is to chart, which is chart and the love of God. So, you know, that we... Which is we, charity. Right. What? Which is charity? No, no, chart. Well, what's charity? <laughs> I'm sorry. Which is, never forget the end, which is, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right, it is charity. <laughs> Goodness <laughs> sake. It's always good to be humble. Thank you for pointing sure. that out. Yeah, my bonehead moment here. I'm trying to. No, no. That's, you're charting a you're charting a course in spiritual life, of course. <laughs> Goodness sake. Okay, let me repeat that. <laughs> Never so attach ourselves to a means as to forget the end, which is charity and the love of God. Whew. I'm sweating now. <laughs> I think we were all pretending we knew what chart was. Yeah, that's right. Well, there is a great tendency to do this. And I, I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable about this, but you know, we'll often want to take upon ourselves certain disciplines or behaviors that make us feel in a certain way. And that is always a kind of danger. Not only that we could do ourselves harm through them physically, but even on a spiritual level, that we might embrace something that makes us feel more religious or more spiritual or draw, even draws attention to ourselves. And Philip was very cautious about that, that he, he didn't want people to do things simply to be seen. In fact, it's best that things would remain hidden about one's spiritual practices, that we wouldn't talk about them or do them openly or in an effective manner to draw attention <clears throat> to ourselves. And, you know, one of the things often is with, like, wearing the veil. And I have nothing against the, the, the practice of that, you know, at, at Mass. But it's still a spiritual discipline and it has meaning to it. And it's not, it's fallen out of practice within the life of the Church. And so sometimes to embrace it and to wear it can draw attention to yourself but also it changes the way that one experiences prayer that if you always feel that now you have to have this veil on when you're praying is changing your relationship with God so it's no slight thing to embrace this discipline and often though it will be taken up because there is a desire to do it because it gives the person a sense of piety and you know I, I want to respect that you know people have you know their own piety and so you don't want to squash it but with things like this you would want, even with something like that you would want to talk to your confessor about it or your spiritual director, not just take it on because it seems like a good idea because it could it could foster, you know, be, or because it would make one feel more prayerful it might do those things that's why I have no problem with it, but it, it does change one's perception of oneself and it can make a person very self-conscious. And, you know, if you think about a woman coming to prayer, always having this sense that she has to cover herself, you know, whatever meaning a person gives to that, or however they understand that, is still changing that their, their perception of God and their, their understanding of the nature of prayer. So it's no light thing to be undertaken, is all I'm saying, is that 
the counsel that is given here is a very important one to explore one's desire for doing so. And I've never, I've never had one person ask me about that, you know, whether or not I, you know, should I do this, would this be a good thing? And I think, I think that's probably true about a lot of spiritual practices too, but I think this is it's a more obvious one because it's more uh, public kind of symbol. But I've never had anyone ask to do it because it's usually through uh, comparison with others who have taken it up and talk and sort of like this intertalk or whatever you would call that, you know, this kind of dialogue that takes place within a group that then stirs up the desire to embrace the, the particular piety behind it. But I've also seen a kind of self-consciousness develop then, a discomfort because there's this sense that people are looking at you because nobody else or very few are, are wearing it. So here, and this is even something that's part of the tradition of the church, you know, or was a part of the tradition of the church and is still in a sense, I mean, there's nothing been declared invalid about it or sinful about it. But even if it was something as, as, as small as that, it's important to be able to talk to one's confessor and spiritual director about it. And if it's important with that, think about how much more important it is to talk about something like fasting or vigils, getting up in the middle of the night to pray. You know, Philip had guys in his own day who wanted to embrace that practice and do it, you know, every single night and they didn't follow his counsel and they ended up hurting themselves so, so that they couldn't embrace their spiritual practices for six months on end because they did themselves such physical damage by interrupting their sleep in such a radical way or the same thing with fasting you know made themselves sick because they did it too too strictly for what was required of them so this is the most sound counsel i think that philip is giving here that's rooted within the spiritual tradition as a whole and yet i think has in large part been lost as we become individualists i think so often when it comes to this spiritual spiritual life, what seems good to us at the moment, or what somebody else tells us, or something that we've seen, rather than really allowing that to arise out of, the, you know, a grace-filled setting, and out of a, a, uh, this knowledge that exists between confessor and penitent. One quick. Uh, okay. I'll be right there. Mm, okay. um, I think what sort of what do you call it, um, deters one from almost a uh, self-punishment, you know, is um, not um, leading one to just, to, to embrace all the gifts of the church, like this group tonight, or you know, going to Mass, not just on Sunday, but during the week, because when I see a priest talking at the pulpit saying, we are all sinners, okay? Or like you say, you know, we go to Mass, we go to confession too. Or just the talk you're having tonight where you didn't use the word fear and punishment. Yeah. That loosens up and lets the Holy Spirit really flow so mm -hmm. that you're not doing things and what you think God is, but you're really educating us and bringing us 
to the fullness of the church and, and how loving right. it's based on love, not punishment. Right. And it's what I think what Philip saw is that it allows us to live within the tradition of the church, but also the obedient obedience frees us. It liberates us. And this is what we come to in these final paragraphs here. So let's just, we'll, we'll finish up here. But I think he, it really comes into focus here why he's teaching what he does. Let the penitent obey his confessor as God, discovering to, discovering to him all his affections with freedom, sincerity, and simplicity, and take no resolution without his counsel. And the Holy Master adds that whoever thus acts may be assured that he will not be obliged to render an account of his actions to God. This obedience was first practiced and afterwards taught by our Holy Master, who though he alleged his incapacity and insufficiency, yet nevertheless became a priest in obedience and took on himself the charge of confessions instead of going to the Indies, to which mission he was especially attached by that love of God, which caused him to burn with a desire of shedding his blood for the Holy Faith, to say nothing of many other acts of prompt obedience which are recorded in his life. We should take example from all this and always obey our spiritual father, even when he commands things contrary to the penitent's own idea of his inability. And so, you know, what is being said here is that this provides us with a kind of freedom. When we are able to act in obedience, that obedience has a certain value for us in the spiritual life. We don't need to worry about making a mistake when we've entrusted ourselves to the counsel and the guidance of others. It's not as though we set aside our reason or our ability to think things through, but when we are acting in obedience, we can be and set aside our own will. That's where we typically fall into danger. When we've set aside our own will and have embraced the counsel of a trusted confessor, then we are liberated from that kind of willfulness that does lead us in the air. And we, when it does come to making, giving an account of ourselves to God, you know, that it stands in our favor that, you know, we humbled ourselves and we sought to act in obedience, even if we, you know, carried that out imperfectly. And finally, the penitent must never constrain the confessor to give a reluctant permission. And as regards this, Father Pietro Consolini greatly deplored the injury now done to obedience in the practice of confessions. Since instead of the profound humility and obedience required of the penitent in the sacrament, it now is, to use his own words, so monstrously, man monstrously managed that whereas the conf confessor once guided the penitent, penitents now direct confessors and try to bend them to their own pleasure. Let the penitent be careful never to abuse the sacrament of penance through the interested motives by going through interested motives by going to confession to obtain alms from the confessor. St. Philip detected this abuse and once perceiving in his spirit that a certain woman only came for bread, he said to her, my good woman, go and God be with you, for there is no bread for you here, nor would he hear her confessions anymore. So not trying to bend the will of our confessor. It may seem as though, you know, the penance that is being given is too harsh or too little but you know we don't want to be willful in the act of confession itself, and sometimes you know we will question the judgment there of the confessor, especially if we're being you know counseled to do something in our spiritual life <coughs> that might seem beyond our ability. 
you know, how many young men, for example, have perhaps thought themselves incapable or, or unworthy of pursuing the path of priesthood, and only through, you know, could could only be uh, convinced through the counsel of a confessor to pursue that path by what the confessor saw in them, even though perhaps they were incapable in regards to natural talents or abilities. You know, the confessor often can judge something there of the person's spirit that makes them suitable for the vocation, you know, not whether or not a person thinks that they should, you know, are incapable of doing what the task requires. So I know that was a lot. You know, in the future we'll try to keep to our uh, shorter timeline. But uh, I think there is so much to be offered through these little re reflections that it will be very fruitful in the years to come. So any final comments or questions? Well, when we were reading the last page especially, I was just thinking of back when we were we still in Climacus and a ladder of divine ascent, and just thinking, you know, so many of the anxieties of the questions that come up reading this whole thing, like, what if he's a bad confessor? Like, what if he really is giving me penances that are too light? Or what if, you know, I want to do more, I want to do less? And I think, like, we have all of these things that hold us back from submitting ourselves so completely and opening ourselves up so absolutely. But... For Climacus, it didn't even matter if your confessor was like some horrible person who wasn't like living the spiritual life almost at all because the very act of obedience and all the humility it took and all the trust it took and all of the like long yeah, death to self it took. Remember the one that beat his right. guy to yeah. death, right? I mean, it's, it's worth so much that just that <laughs> act of obedience is like, we do more than, than anything. Like, it's just, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It was. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, I think what it's, yeah, right, we want to avoid extremes, but I think what it's saying is that there is a particular value to obedience that is a reflection of Christ's obedience to the Father, and that there's something formative about this that's based not upon the ability of the confessor, that it's based upon the grace of the sacrament and the value of the obedience itself. Yes? give a quick example of what of being scrupulous I mean I think I know but you know is it real extreme things or well often it's not okay. well you in terms of extreme things that have been done or no that, no that like I mean what, be, what would be an example of scrupulosity yeah yeah yeah, yeah. just like you know like a, a passing thought that then, because the passing thought came, that it felt as though it, you know, really dismantled their relationship with God, and that, you know, that threw them into a serious sin. And often, you know, a regular part of the spiritual life, I think all of us know, is on a daily basis, struggling with thoughts that come to our mind, you know, very quickly almost out of nowhere and with no rhyme or reason and we're called to set them aside but the mere fact that they happen to flash into our mind doesn't you know destroy our relationship with with God and so a person who would be struggling with scrupulosity might might actually feel that or be uncertain about it in some way and you know and not be able to find even comfort through the confessional 
that would come back, would go back repeatedly, perhaps. You know, not sure. You know, I, I already, I already confess this, but kind of thing. So not even being able to have confidence in the grace that they did receive through the sacrament, having confessed their sin. So it's it's not. It can be a very painful kind of affliction to have. Well, there are many goodies on the table, so why don't we we stop there, and we can carry on any additional conversation over those. When we close with a prayer, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Philip, pray for us.